Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and has just been released. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource, or order from your favorite online retailer. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Abraham Lincoln has been the subject of more biographies than any other president. While I can't say this for certain, I suspect that there may be as many biographies about the 16th president as all of the other presidents combined. In every way, Lincoln was a complex, tragic, enigmatic, towering figure who, as it was said at his deathbed, belongs to the ages. Most of us know the basic facts about him. He was born in a one-room log cabin in Kentucky on February 12, 1809. When he was a boy, his family moved to Indiana, where his mother died after drinking poisoned milk. She was only 34. That was a dangerous problem in those days. Whenever cattle grazed in the open, they sometimes ingested a poisonous plant called white snake root. There were toxins in this weed that rendered the cow's milk poisonous, and thousands of American pioneers and settlers died from this, especially in the Ohio Valley. It was an awful death, and Abraham Lincoln was only nine years old when his mother died. Later, his older sister also died, leaving him devastated. Lincoln never received very much formal education, but he had a brilliant mind and largely taught himself. Much of his reading had a Christian basis to it. As a teenager, he read the Bible, the King James Version of it, Pilgrim's Progress, and early Christian novels like Robinson Crusoe. He grew tall, gangly, and strong. As a young man, he traveled by flatboat to New Orleans, where he was nearly robbed, but where he also saw the ravages of slavery firsthand. In the 1830s, Lincoln fell in love with a girl named Anne Rutledge, and some historians believe they became engaged. When Anne died of typhoid fever, Lincoln was again devastated. He was a melancholy man by temperament, and experts today would probably diagnose him as clinically depressed. Shortly afterward, Lincoln began seeing Mary Todd, the daughter of a wealthy slaveholder in Lexington, Kentucky. The romance was rocky at times, and Lincoln canceled their wedding, sending him into another spiraling bout of melancholy. But they reconciled and married and finally settled in Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln taught himself law by reading, largely the law books of Blackstone, and he was admitted to the Illinois Bar. He joined a law firm with William Herndon and became involved in local politics. In 1846, he was elected to the United States House of Representatives and served one term alongside, as it happened, John Quincy Adams, before he returned to Springfield, where he represented clients and cases, including murder court cases, before a judicial circuit through the area. In 1855, he ran for the United States Senate, but he lost. The next year, 
He helped organize the Republican Party in Illinois, and he was considered for the vice presidential nomination. In 1858, he ran again for the Senate, this time against Stephen A. Douglas, with whom he famously debated across the state. Lincoln may have won the debates, but again, he lost the election. In 1860, he was nominated by the Republicans for the presidency, and this time he won. He gave his first inaugural address on March 4, 1861, and a month later the Confederate Army fired on Fort Sumter starting the Civil War. All of that we know, and more. But what about Lincoln's personal faith? What about his religion or his relationship with Christianity? Like every other aspect of his life, this one has been scrutinized by one historian after another with millions of words written about it, but there is one book that I particularly want to recommend. A couple of years ago, I met Dr. Stephen Mansfield and heard his lecture about this in Washington, and I read his book entitled Lincoln's Battle with God. It was an incredible book, and most of what I'm going to say was drawn partially from Mansfield. Abraham Lincoln was born near the Kentucky camp meetings that sparked the Second Great Awakening, which I talked about in an earlier podcast. But Lincoln's heart was not warmed by the revival fires. He rejected frontier religion and the faith of his parents. When he was in his early 20s, Lincoln left home and settled by himself in New Salem, Illinois, where he was influenced by religious infidels who questioned and who ridiculed the Bible. Lincoln became a skeptic, an infidel, and an avid reader of anti-Christian books by people like Thomas Paine and the French infidel Voltaire. That was accompanied by visits to prostitutes. In the mid-1830s, Lincoln wrote a book disparaging the Bible and attacking the divinity of Christ. Lincoln's friend Samuel Hill, fearing the book would doom Lincoln's political career, snatched it up and burned it in a stove that was, quote, heated as hot as a furnace, and so Lincoln's book went up in the clouds of smoke, end of quote. When he was about 30, Lincoln, during another fit of depression, wrote The Suicide Soliloquy. It was a vivid poem in the form of a kind of shocking suicide note. The whole thing is truly shocking to read. It began, Here where the lonely hooting owl sends forth his midnight moans, Fierce wolves shall o'er my carcass growl, or buzzards pick my bones. When a friend asked him, Do you really believe there is not a future state, a heaven? He replied, I am afraid there is not. It isn't a pleasant thing to think that when we must die, that is the last there is of us. He seemed tormented by the thought. He shocked his friends with his anti-Christian vehemence, and he was perhaps an atheist. But as Lincoln became involved in politics, he seemed to soften his views, and he told voters that although he didn't belong to a specific church, that he was not an atheist, he was not a scoffer, and he had respect for religion. Whether or not that's true or just political posturing is impossible to know, but it does seem that Lincoln began a sea change in his views about religion and Christianity. That was accelerated in 1849. That year, Lincoln's father-in-law, Robert Todd, died of cholera. 
Lincoln traveled to Lexington to deal with the man's estate, and in Mr. Todd's impressive library, he found a book on Christian apologetics. Apologetics is a word having to do with the defense of the Christian faith, and this particular book was entitled, The Christian's Defense, Containing a Fair Statement and impartial examination of the leading objections urged by infidels against the antiquity, genuineness, credibility, and inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Lincoln began reading this book, and he was gripped by its contents, and he sought out its author, Dr. James Smith, a Presbyterian pastor who happened to be in Lincoln's own hometown of Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln later told his brother-in-law, I have been reading a work of Dr. Smith on the evidences of Christianity, and I've heard him preach and converse on the subject, and I am now convinced of the truth of the Christian religion. In Springfield, Lincoln met with Dr. Smith, who was able to personally present the claims of Christ and of the Bible in a way that must have appealed to Lincoln's logical, lawyerly mind. Dr. Smith later felt that Lincoln was converted under his ministry. That's impossible to know for certain, but this we do know. Lincoln became an incessant student of the Bible and began drawing strength and insights from it. According to Stephen Mansfield, he worked phrases from Scripture into his daily conversation with such ease that often his listeners did not realize until later he had mentioned a dozen verses from the Bible in a single visit with friends. After winning the presidency and moving to Washington, Lincoln began attending services at a Presbyterian church near the White House. The pastor there, Dr. Phineas Gurley, became Lincoln's spiritual advisor. I like Gurley, Lincoln said. He don't preach politics. I get enough of that through the week, and when I go to church, I like to hear the gospel. The Lincolns attended church regularly, gave to the church financially, and made sure their children were involved. They also attended Thursday night prayer services at the church. While in the White House, Lincoln kept the Bible in his desk and a New Testament in his pocket. He wanted Christian chaplains in the army, and he approved a bill that placed the slogan, In God We Trust, on our coins. When a group called the Loyal Colored People of Baltimore gave him an expensive Bible, he replied, In regard to this great book, I have but to say it is the best gift God has ever given to men. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. When visiting the Lincoln Memorial, for example, notice the inscription of Lincoln's second inaugural address. It contains 14 references to God and four Bible verses. Gurley's pastoral care bore Lincoln through the horrors of the Civil War and the tragic death of his son, Willie. Gurley later said, I have had frequent and intimate conversations with him on the subject of the Bible. In the latter days of his chastened and weary life, after the death of his son, Willie, and his visit to the battlefield of Gettysburg, he said with tears in his eyes that he had lost confidence in everything but God, and that he now believed in his heart that he was changed and that he loved the Savior. As I researched material on the subject for my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, I also came across a fascinating account by Brigadier General James Fowler Rustling, a dedicated Christian 
and a Methodist. He was a Civil War veteran who wrote a fascinating book entitled Men and Things I Saw in Civil War Days. In one chapter, Rustling related an encounter he had with Abraham Lincoln immediately following the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm going to read you several paragraphs direct from Rustling's book. He said, The next time I saw Mr. Lincoln was on Sunday, July 5th, 1863, the Sunday after the battles of Gettysburg and Vicksburg, and it happened on this wise. Gettysburg was fought on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1816. General Daniel F. Sickles of New York, commanding the 3rd Corps, had lost his right leg, and on Sunday following, which would have been July 5, arrived in Washington with his leg amputated above the knee. He was taken to a private dwelling on F Street, nearly opposite the Epit House, and there I found him in the front room on the first floor, resting on a hospital structure when I called to see him about 3 p.m. I was then a lieutenant colonel on his staff, and I was naturally anxious to see my chief. Rustling continued, We had not been talking very long when his orderly announced that His Excellency, the President, had come to visit, and immediately Mr. Lincoln walked into the room accompanied by his son Tad, then a lad of perhaps 10 or 12 years. Having learned of General Sickles' arrival in Washington, Lincoln rode in on horseback to call on him with a squad of cavalry as escort. They shook hands cordially but pathetically, and it was easy to see that both held the other in high esteem. Rustling continued, Greetings over, Mr. Washington dropped into a chair and crossing his prodigious arms and legs, he soon fell into questioning Sickles as to all the phases of the combat at Gettysburg. He asked first, of course, as to General Sickles' own ghastly wound, and then how and when it happened and how he was getting on and encouraged him, and then he passed on to the great casualties there and how the wounded were being carried for, and finally he came to the magnitude and significance of the victory at Gettysburg. Sickles, recumbent on his stretcher with a cigar between his fingers, puffing it leisurely, answered Mr. Lincoln in detail. Occasionally he would wince with pain and call sharply to his orderly to wet his fevered stump with water. But he never dropped a cigar nor lost the thread of his narrative nor missed a point of their discussion. When Mr. Lincoln's inquiries seemed ended, General Sickles, after a puff or two of his cigar in silence, resumed the conversation substantially as follows. Well, Mr. President, I beg pardon, but what do you think about Gettysburg? What was your opinion of things while we were up there campaigning and fighting? Oh, replied Mr. Lincoln, I didn't think much about it. I was not much concerned about you. You were not, said Sickles as if amazed. Why, we heard that you Washington folks were a good deal excited, and you certainly had good cause for it was nip and tuck with us a good deal of the time. Yes, I know that, said Lincoln. And I suppose some of us were a little rattled. Indeed, some of the cabinet talked of Washington's being captured and ordered a gunboat or two here, and even went so far as to send some governmental archives abroad, and they wanted me to go too, but I refused. No, General Sickles, I had no fears of Gettysburg. Why not, Mr. President? How was that? 
Pretty much everyone down here, we heard, was more or less in a panic, Lincoln said. Yes, I expect, and a good many more than will own up to it now. But naturally, General Sickles, I had no fears of Gettysburg, and if you really want to know, I will tell you why. Of course, I don't want you and Colonel Rustling here to say anything about this, at least not now. People might laugh if it got out, you know. But the fact is, in the very pinch of the campaign there, I went to my room one day and got down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for victory at Gettysburg. I told him that this was his country, and the war was his war, but that we really couldn't stand another Fredericksburg or Chancellorsville. And then and there I made a solemn vow with my Maker that if he would stand by you boys at Gettysburg, I would stand by him. And thus, after wrestling with the Almighty in prayer, I don't know how it was, and it is not for me to explain, but somehow or other a sweet comfort crept into my soul that God Almighty had taken the whole business into his own hands, and we were bound to win at Gettysburg. And he did stand by you boys at Gettysburg, and now I will stand by him. No, General Sickles, I had no fears of Gettysburg, and that is the why of it. I believe that account is plausible, and if so, it helps confirm the hypothesis that Lincoln moved more and more from atheism or near-atheism to Christianity or near-Christianity. But now to Lincoln's last words, as Stephen Mansfield, the historian, describes them. On Good Friday, April 14, 1865, Abraham and Mary Lincoln were sitting in Ford's Theater watching a production of our American cousin. Lincoln leaned over and whispered that after the war, he didn't want to return immediately to Springfield. We can go abroad among strangers where I can rest, he told his wife. We will visit the Holy Land. We will visit the Holy Land and see those places hallowed by the footsteps of the Savior. There is no place I so desire to see as Jerusalem. And with that last word, Jerusalem, hath spoken on his tongue, the bullet of the assassin entered his brain. Pastor Gurley rushed to the stricken president's side and was there the next morning when he died. Four days later, Gurley conducted Lincoln's funeral in the East Room of the White House, perhaps recalling to mind how Lincoln had told him that he had lost confidence in everything but God. Gurley told the mourners in his funeral sermon, we admired his childlike simplicity, his freedom from guile and deceit, his staunch and sterling integrity, his kind and forgiving temper. But more sublime than any of these, more holy and influential, more beautiful and strong and sustaining was his abiding confidence in God. This was his noblest virtue, his grandest principle, the secret alike of his strength, his patience, and his success, and this it seems to me, after being near him steadily and with him often for more than four years, is the principle by which, more than any other, he, being dead, yet speaketh. By this he speaks to his successor in office, and charges him to have faith in God. By this he speaks to the members of his cabinet, to the men with whom he counseled so often and was associated for so long, and he charges them 
to have faith in God. By this he speaks to the officers and men of our noble army and navy, and as they stand at their post of duty and peril, he charges them to have faith in God. By this he speaks to all who occupy positions of influence and authority in these sad and troublous times, and he charges them to have faith in God. By this he speaks to this great people, as they sit in sackcloth today, and weep for him with a bitter wailing, and refuse to be comforted, and he charges them to have faith in God. And by this he will speak throughout the ages, and to all of the rulers and the peoples in every land, telling them, have confidence in God. So back to our question, was Abraham Lincoln a Christian? We do not have a specific moment of his conversion, no clear evidence of baptism or church membership, and historians take different views on this subject. But it seems clear that over the years, Abraham Lincoln moved steadily from atheism or near-atheism to Christianity or near-Christianity. Personally, I think we'll be able to ask him ourselves about it in heaven. I'm glad you tuned into this podcast. It was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media, edited by Elijah Rowe, music by Jordan Davis. For more information and resources, including information about my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening.